0: Well, welcome to Easter, the time when we remind ourselves that God has turned the world upside down. That's our message. Christ is risen. He's risen Hallelujah. And it's really good news. Jesus is alive, death has been defeated, eternal life is up for the taking, and God is restoring and recreating the entire cosmos. But it's also really disorienting. Easter defies what we know. You know, earth orbits the sun. Coke is better than Pepsi. And the dead stay dead. You know, when we say Jesus was raised from the dead, that dead stuff comes back to life. It can feel like saying Pepsi is better than Coke. Or that Edmonton is better than Vancouver. Or that the sun orbits the earth. And so what does this news of the resurrection do to you? Jesus is alive. What does it stir in you? Whether you feel joy or disbelief, whether this news makes you want to worship or it causes all kinds of doubt, I want to assure you that whether it's joy, disbelief, worship, or doubt, all of these responses are present in our passage this morning. The news of Easter does different things to different people. We all respond in unique Ways. And so take stock this morning. What's going on in you as you hear this news that Jesus is alive? Our passage today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of many eyewitness accounts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But why should we trust anything Matthew has to say when I mean, this is a religious scripture and text? It's not history. What are we supposed to learn from this sort of thing, but not so fast? You know, the German critical scholar Jens Schroeter from Humboldt University, and he says it just like that, he has shown through his work that the Gospels as historical sources is actually on the rise and in greater acceptance in critical scholarship, not on the decline. The majority of mainstream scholars agree that the Gospels are valid historical sources. Here's how he puts it, and he's critical of Christianity, but here's what he says. In recent research, one can discern a clear tendency to grant the Gospels the status of historical sources relevant in historical perspective. The judgment that the Gospels are ultimately unfruitful for historical presentation of the activity of Jesus due to their religious character or their literary presentation can no longer convince. Essentially, he's saying, Whatever you may believe about the scriptures, at the very least, these are historical documents that help us fill out the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may not agree with everything the gospels say, you may not completely agree with their presentation, but they are at the very least valid historical sources if you want to know about this person, Jesus of Nazareth. So whatever you may believe about the scriptures this morning, I ask that you would suspend those beliefs and press into the gospel of Matthew with us because Matthew wants us to ask two questions. How will you explain the resurrection? And how will you respond? So if you do have a Bible with you this morning, open it to the gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 28, the end of his gospel. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of our church Bibles. It's yours Everything's on the screen behind me. Here's what Matthew writes. After the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. There's a couple people right away in the scene, the guard, but two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And if you follow Matthew's account, both of these Marys were there as Christ was crucified. The disciples fled, but they stayed. And if you follow Matthew's account, both of these Marys. Watch Jesus' body be laid in the tomb. And now here they are on the first day of the week. They're the first ones at the tomb. And it's fitting that these Marys that were faithful to the very end are the ones that get to discover the empty tomb and the good news that Christ is risen. They're receiving love's reward. We're told it's the break of dawn. And they're at the tomb. And something terrifying takes place, something disorienting, something that shakes you to your core and makes you rattle in your boots, kind of scary, and we can barely imagine it. Because when we think of angels, we think of nice, cute cherubim on hallmark carts. But this angel is described like lightning. Have you ever been near where lightning strikes? That is terrifying. His clothing is unordinary, white like snow. The earth shakes, The stone is rolled away, and the angel appears almost comedically. It just turns this gravestone, this massive stone, into a place to lounge. I didn't know God's messengers were into prop comedy, but I like it. (laughs) And the guards are so afraid, we're told they became like dead men. They became like dead men. They're terrified. This is not how any of them thought the week was going to begin. And so there's a disorientation that happens, and it raises all sorts of questions. But before we can get any answers, the angel speaks. We read in verse 5, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you in Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. I love that sassy comment at the end. The angel reminds them, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. It's going down just as he told you it would. You don't need to be surprised. He's just doing what he promised. Again, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew Three times, Jesus pulls his disciples aside on the way to Jerusalem and says, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, heads up, here's how it's going to go down. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. And it all happened as he said he would. And now it starts to make sense. But all the gospels highlight that each time he did this, they didn't understand. Because when someone says to you, I will be crucified and be raised from the dead, you don't have categories for that. How do you make sense of that? That is not how the world works. But now they get it. Now they see that Jesus meant what he said and has fulfilled his promise. And it's likely that other things Jesus said to them started to make sense too. Like when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And because of what they've just witnessed, this empty tomb, this promise that they'll encounter Jesus, they no longer offer up the Sunday textbook school answer. Yes, Lord, you're the resurrection and the life. No, now they know it in their bones. There's a dance in their souls that Jesus is alive. Death has been defeated. Eternal life is up for grabs because God is remaking the entire world. They believe. And once the women have heard everything they need to hear, they're off like a rocket. They rush off to pass this message on to the disciples. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive, just like he promised. Here's how Matthew puts it. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. One scholar calls the news of the resurrection an explosion of joy. I love that description of this, an explosion of joy. That's what's happening here. The two Marys are afraid, yet filled with joy. I love that turn of phrase, afraid, yet filled with joy. The fear makes sense. The guards are afraid, the women are afraid, there's an angel, there's a resurrection. This is not how the world works. Black is white, up is down, left is right. Everything's dramatically turned around, and it's a scary, fearful thing. And that's a very human reaction. But unlike the guards, who become so afraid, they're almost like corpses themselves, these two women are also gripped with joy. They're afraid yet filled with joy. And the joy makes sense, too. Joy often accompanies something good and right and beautiful. When you hold your newborn for the first time, joy. When you complete the degree you've been working so hard at, joy. You know, when when you're reunited with a loved one, joy. When you put away that two-pound burger, joy. But there's something unique about their joy. This is joy that emerges from grief. This is joy that emerges from the soil of grief. We have to remember that these women watched their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, their friend, die a horrendous death. He was the most incredible person they had ever met in their lives. Compassionate and strong and gentle and full of mercy. He taught with an authority like no one else had. He was able to heal. He was never above the sinner, yet never cowering before the powerful. Gone. And as he was crucified, the hopes that he would be the Messiah who would change the world, that crumbled too. The long-awaited king of Israel who would liberate and restore their nation, restoring them to glory, ushering them into the presence of God for all eternity, gone. And so the women have spent the past nights and days in the weight and heaviness of grief with no hope. Death has the final say. But now, They're afraid yet filled with joy because the tomb is empty. Christ kept his promise and they will see him for themselves. The world might not make sense anymore. The dead come back to life, but now they see that Jesus is doing something even better than what they expected. Their hopes were too small. He's actually remaking the whole world. It's better than they dared dream or imagine. And before they can even reach the disciples, Matthew writes in verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. I love how nonchalant Jesus is. Greetings? Talk about understatement. I mean, greetings? God has appeared in many different ways in the scriptures, and it usually has a pretty big announcement. And if I was raised from the dead, I'd be like, behold the man. But Jesus, hello, (laughs) greetings, hi. Resurrection appears in the most ordinary way. Don't ever believe God doesn't have a sense of humor. That's the first takeaway. But also see that that simple hello from Jesus changes everything changes everything. The women, they stop dead in their tracks. They fall at their knees. They they grab at his feet. And Matthew tells us they worshiped him. That ought to shock us more than the resurrection. They worship him. We don't want to lose sight of the fact that these women are Jewish through and through. They grew up knowing the second command. You shall have no other gods before me. They had to memorize Leviticus and they knew that if you blaspheme, if you worship a false god, that was a capital offense. Only God is worthy of our worship and praise and adoration. Worship him? The former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, put it like this. To worship. To worship. To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. When you worship, you give your whole person to whatever you're worshiping your conscience, your mind, your imagination, your heart, your will. We could add your bodies. And so no wonder false worship was such an offense in ancient Israel. No person or object was worthy of this sort of adoration and praise, only God. So what are these two women doing? They've either done something horrible and egregious or something revolutionary and beautiful. They've either committed blasphemy or they finally, by God's grace, see Jesus for who he truly is. The Son of God. Fully human fully God, one person. If we just pause and take stock of Matthew's account so far, we have two peculiarities. The first is that people worship Jesus. And the second is that women are the witnesses of the empty tomb. If Matthew was going to start a new cult or sect within ancient Judaism, if he's telling a lie, if he's making something up, you don't try to start a movement by being like, hey, you know what would be fun? blasphemy. That's not a great starting point if you're going to get buy-in. And yet the evidence shows that all these Jewish Christians started worshiping a human being as if he were God. That's a tough sell when you understand ancient Judaism, and it's difficult to explain how it took root so deeply and quickly and moved throughout the world. But that's just the first peculiarity. The other issue is if Matthew's making something up, if he's just fabricating a story, you don't try to sell the story by saying women are the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Because in that time and place, women couldn't even testify in court. They weren't seen as credible witnesses. They weren't trustworthy. And so this detail that women are the ones reporting this actually hurts the case for the resurrection more than it helps. Here's an example. The Greek philosopher Kelsus of the second century argued, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical, which is why Kelsus died single. (laughs) But if Matthew was just fabricating a story, if he was trying to sell people some fake news, this isn't how you do it. You wouldn't use this detail. The fact that Matthew includes this detail shows that he's just reporting the facts. Women were the ones to discover the empty tomb. They were the first preachers of the gospel. Women, can I get an amen? But with any event, there's always more than one perspective. There's always more than one take. There's always more than one story. As Matthew continues to report what happened, the scene shifts from the women to the guards. We read in verse 11. While the women were on their way, so as they're rushing to the disciples, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So, The soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The guards are in a really embarrassing situation, if you think about it. They had one job. Keep the body in the tomb. And now they have to come back to their supervisors and report everything that happened. The angel, the empty tomb, the women as witnesses. And they relay all these facts to these leaders. But these group of leaders aren't interested in facts, and a lot more could be said about their motives and character. But here's the one thing I want to focus on their beliefs drive their story. It's true of every person. Your beliefs drive how you explain things. They had already made up their minds about who Jesus was and what is and isn't possible, and so this doesn't align with what they already believe, and so they come up with another explanation. His body was stolen. But what's interesting to me is that Matthew just notes this story was widely circulated. Matthew acknowledges it and offers nothing more. He offers no defense. He doesn't even try to dismantle it. Because from Matthew's vantage point, the testimony is enough. The facts are sufficient. There's an empty tomb and witnesses who saw Jesus himself. People who didn't believe it was possible for him to be raised from the dead now believe it's possible. But if you're honest, I mean, don't you wish Matthew gave us a little bit more of an explanation of why we should believe this news? Because if all we had was an empty tomb, this explanation seems pretty plausible. Someone could have just come and taken the body and it's just a giant deception. And of course, other explanations have been spun in culture and especially in modern scholarship. They go something like Jesus never died, it was a fake resurrection, Jesus had a look-alike that tricked people or a twin brother. One of my favorites, that the disciples had a mass hallucination. I guess they were at the party yesterday. Or that this was some sort of spiritual but not real encounter. I've read that Jesus was just a hologram or a time traveler or an alien. On and on they go. And essentially, the conclusion usually is Jesus was a good man, a moral teacher, a misguided prophet, an exaggeration of his disciples' imaginations. But what he was not was physically raised from the dead. But whatever story, whatever explanation, it's driven by the exact same impulse at work in the leaders in this passage. Like the leaders in this passage, if we deny the empty tomb, it's usually because we already have our minds made up. We already know what we believe. We believe this can't be possible. We believe this couldn't happen. And therefore, we choose a theory that helps us categorize the resurrection as myth or fiction. We explain away the resurrection because we believe it's not possible. Or because, like these leaders, we don't like the implications of if it is true. Because then we might actually have to worship this Jesus of Nazareth. So let me ask you, are your beliefs stopping you from examining the evidence? Are your beliefs stopping you from taking a close and hard look at the data we have about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? From Matthew's vantage point, these two facts are enough, the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses, and they depend upon each other. If all we had was an empty tomb and no eyewitnesses, sure, maybe the body was stolen. How could we know? But if all we had were people saying, oh, we saw Jesus, but the tomb wasn't empty. Well, clearly they're misled. Clearly they're making up stories or fables. But the two go together, the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses. This is the testimony about the resurrection. The question is, could you open yourself to this data? Could you suspend your belief and actually investigate? And look, if you want to learn about this, there's so many resources we'd be happy to point you to, and you should investigate the data. But here's the thing. If we could open ourselves to this possibility, yes, you could go and read and learn, but you can also encounter Jesus for yourself. That's the implication of this news, that Jesus is alive and you can find him. And that's where the story goes on in Matthew. Look at verse 16 and 17. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw them, saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So this is the momentum of the passage, right? This is where we're supposed to be excited about. When the angel appears, the angel says to the women, "Go and tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee." When Jesus meets the women, he says to them, "Go and tell the disciples to meet Me in Galilee, because he knows his disciples are pretty hard-hearted and need to hear the message twice. And so the disciples finally show up in Galilee. They're here to meet Jesus. They're in the place where they're supposed to be. And I love how Matthew describes it. They worshipped. They worshipped. Like the women, they throw all the rules aside. They see something different about Jesus. They worship him. And yet, Matthew adds, and some doubt it some doubted. What kind of doubt is happening here? It's not just describing the doubt of Thomas, which we read about in John's gospel. It's describing several of these disciples. What kind of doubt is going on? They're standing before Jesus. Well, maybe it's, uh, they're doubting their senses. I could see that. You're you're, you're looking at this, you see that it's Jesus, but your mind says, this can't be happening. How could this be possible? This is not how the world works. So maybe it's an existential doubt, a disorientation. It's possible. But I think it's more likely relational doubt. Because every single one of these disciples abandoned Jesus when push came to shove. They abandoned him when he was arrested and condemned and crucified. They all turned Their backs on him as he was being traumatized and tortured. Each and every single one of these men that Jesus calls brothers abandoned him. So, how could doubt not arise? Where do we stand with you, Jesus? Where do we stand with the risen Lord? Are we okay? But what's beautiful about this passage is that Jesus stands with them in their worship and their doubt. That the risen Lord meets them as they are with whatever they bring to the table. Because no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how much you may have screwed up, you can never outsin God's grace. That's the whole point of the cross. God forgives. You see, the whole point of the death and resurrection of Jesus is so that he can be with us forever. The cross is relational. Forgiveness and reconciliation shows that the whole point of everything Jesus has done is to be in relationship with us, is to be in relationship with disciples, no matter how they may have abandoned him, no matter how they may sin. And that's why he makes this beautiful promise at the end of the gospel in verse 20. After reminding them, I'm not done with you. I have a purpose for you. He says this, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And that's when Matthew ends his gospel, this profound promise. I'm with you always until the very end of the age. He's reminding his disciples, no matter what doubts they may have, no matter what worries they may have about whether they're good enough for him, it doesn't matter. He's with them, always. But the promise hasn't expired either. It's a promise that remains true right now. Jesus Christ is with us always, to the end of the age. And so what does it mean for us in this room to encounter Jesus now, to encounter this promise? What we see throughout the scriptures is that time and time again, people encounter the risen Lord. Peter encounters him three times before it really sinks in. And the one that really mattered was a breakfast on the beach. Other people meet Jesus while walking down the street or in rooms or over meals, and they seemingly seem to meet him everywhere but the empty tomb. For others throughout the ancient world, they encounter Jesus through the preaching of the gospel when faithful disciples went out into the world and said, here's what happened in Jerusalem. Here's the good news. And people encounter Christ as he's proclaimed. And this hasn't changed if you sit down and, and grab a coffee with anyone in this room who believes in Jesus, they will have a story to tell. The details will be different, but the encounter will be with the same Lord. It might be a book. It might be having grown up in a family and slowly coming to see the truth that they've been taught. It might have been a conversation they had with someone or a lecture they heard or caring for the poor and meeting Christ in that or a small group or a spiritual encounter, or like the story we heard from Lucy, two awkward guys on Granville Street inviting you to try Alpha for a free meal. The Lord works in mysterious ways. You see, I can't tell you how you'll meet the risen Lord because I'm not him. But what I can tell you is that he's alive. That he's promised to be with us to the end of the age, and you can take that promise to the bank. It means you can meet the risen Lord. And it's because he's resurrected. It's because he ascended into heaven that this promise is true. I'm with you to the end of the age. But I also want to be clear about one thing. I don't want to give the impression that faith in Jesus means stone-cold certainty. The passage shows us that doubt is welcomed in the midst of a worshiping community. You don't have to have all your doubts resolved to come to Jesus. You don't have to have every answer squared away. You don't have to have figured out every intellectual struggle. Doubt was present in his closest disciples. And so the presence of doubt in this passage shows us that you're actually in the best place right now to work through your doubt to bring your doubt in the midst of a worshiping community and to explore that doubt with others rather than locking yourself up by yourself and just letting that doubt gnaw away at you. You bring it into relationships. You talk about it and you seek answers. And so that's my invitation to you. If you have your doubts about who Jesus is, if you're still trying to figure out if anything we've talked about this morning is true at all, your doubt's welcome in this space. Take as long as you need, but no longer than necessary. Because if this news is true, it is really good and it will transform your life. But even if you believe in Jesus and you have doubt and you're wrestling with things about Christian faith, your doubt is welcome in this place. Doubt is not the antithesis of worship, it is welcome in the presence of worship. It is welcomed, but not always affirmed. It is seen, it's explored it can be resolved because we believe there is an answer to the fundamental question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And the answer is he's the son of God, the risen Lord. And so I want to ask you, are you trying to figure out if this is true at all? Or are your beliefs stopping you from examining the evidence? And if you do come to see this is true, I want to tell you something. The opposite of unbelief isn't belief. Yes, we We need to believe. But what Matthew shows us is the opposite of unbelief is worship. The opposite of unbelief is worship. Our whole lives being centered around this Jesus of Nazareth. Not stoic, bland, dutiful, Anglican, dry obedience. Come on, we can make fun of ourselves. Lighten up. But joyful worship. Our conscience and our mind and our imagination, our hearts. Invigorated and enlivened by the news, Jesus is alive. Death is defeated. Eternal life is out for grabs because God is renewing and remaking the entire universe. And in the meantime, we get to discover the joy of walking with the God who is with us always. And since Christ's tomb is empty, it means your tomb will be empty too on the last day. You will be raised to everlasting life should you believe in the Son of God. So, hallelujah, Christ is risen.